I say we need to shift, radically shift our culture away from just reluctantly acknowledging there are trans kids or acknowledging that they are trans in order to try and exterminate them because those are the same premise. Mm-hmm. They, they work from the same premise. And instead, we need to desire that they're not just that there be trans kids in the world, but welcome it. Want trans mm. children to live trans childhoods, not yeah. box them back up, shove them back into their families and hide them. We don't even yet want trans kids. And until we do, frankly, we don't deserve that. They don't belong to us. Welcome to the Death Panel. Today, we're joined by a very special guest. Please welcome Jules Gill-Peterson. Jules is the author of the book, Histories of the Transgender Child, out from University of Minnesota Press in 2018, as well as the general editor of Transgender Studies Quarterly. Jules, welcome to the show. I'm a huge fan of your work, and I'm so happy to finally have you on. Ah, well, I'm such a fan of the show, and I'm, I'm honored to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Oh, that means so makes much. makes me feel so nice. Yeah, yeah. that's great. Oh, so I... <laughs> I reached out to you last week because I wanted to have you on to talk about your work and talk about this book because it outlines a sort of previously uncovered history of trans children in the 20th century. And that obviously has like very enormous bearing on the current wave of bills to ban ban trans health care in the U.S. But also now Arkansas has moved forward with that process. So to start us off, Jules, can you Tell the audience a little bit about your work and maybe explain the premise of your book, and then we can get into what's going on in Arkansas and why your research is so relevant to it. For sure. I mean, I'm a trained historian myself and um, and also a trans trans woman of color. And, um, you know, I set out to write this book on the history of trans children, oh gosh, six, seven, eight years ago. Um, and, you know, at the time, I felt very strongly about the subject matter and and thought that I had noticed something really odd happening uh, in the kind of new media coverage. It was still relatively new back then um, on trans children and youth. We were starting to see some of that first kind of coverage and recognition that there were children in the world who were trans during their childhood, as opposed to, you know, a lot of trans adults, myself included, you know, we might talk about our trans childhood in the past tense sort of retrospectively go back and say, oh my gosh, that thing that I did, my whole childhood was so trans. Um, but, you know, we didn't, we didn't know those words. We didn't use them to describe ourselves. We certainly weren't out or identified that way. Um, and, and one of the things that I had, come, I had come across during my PhD research into the history of transgender medicine was actually a surprise to me. You know, I was like, wait a minute, I think there were kids going to some of these clinics, you know, as far back as the 1960s. And, you know, at the time um, that I was researching this in the, in the mid 2010s, I guess, um, or the early 2010s, actually, I, I was surprised because, you know, I too had sort of thought, I think trans kids are a pretty recent kind of generation. You know, we had just started hearing about them in the media and that media was really focused on their ability to suppress puberty um, using puberty suppression medications, which aren't new medications at all. They've been around for a long time, but um, had only been prescribed to trans children 
since the late 1990s in Europe and even more recently in the US. And so I was like, well, hold on. Were there trans kids going to doctors before this? I've never heard of that. And of <laughs> course, there was no, no, no cultural awareness. There wasn't even really much cultural memory in the trans community around this. And so I was really curious about what that story was, you know, like all, like all legendary nerds, um, you know, my research <laughs> starts with a question that just, you know, keeps scratching at me. Um, and I, and the fact that there was nothing written about it, there were no reference texts for me to look at, you know, hardly deterred me. In fact, it made me more excited, but, but the political impetus behind this, this research was actually the way that I saw that idea that trans kids were new being used against them already you know, mm-hmm. before right. this wave of legislation. And it's sort of this broader thing that gets used against trans people all the time, calling us new, like we just showed up, you know, like we were born yesterday, right? And, you know, part of that is what, you know, if I want to take that as generously as possible, I read it as <laughs> sort of mistaking the rise in cultural visibility right. as having some sort of empirical reflection of reality, right? So, of course, for most people... Um, they have just suddenly started seeing and hearing about trans people for the first time, you know, maybe in the last decade, and it's really increased and accelerated, and that includes children. So I can understand why they might imagine that trans people are somehow new. Of course, sometimes LGBT activism kind of reinforces that idea by saying, like, first we fought for gay rights and then gay marriage, and now there are the trans women in reality trans people. <laughs> the whole time we're like, hey, you're selling us out fighting for gay marriage. Thanks a lot. Um, <laughs> but, but so I understand where this idea of newness comes from maybe in most people's imagination. But it's, it's, it's so bad in the beginning of my book, I, I call it libelous, right? Because if you think that a whole group of people, a whole population of human beings just showed up yesterday you basically assume that there isn't anything really substantial to who they are, right? That there must have been something else that sort of invented them, right? And often medicine becomes the sort of straw man for that, that, oh, especially trans kids didn't exist until puberty suppression therapy was offered to them <laughs> right, in a Dutch right. clinic in 1997, right? I mean, it's like, okay, cool. Well, people aren't really invented, but um, you know, so I, I was worried though about how this kind of framing of trans people as new, especially around that kind of trans tipping point, 2014 Time Magazine, Laverne Cox cover. It was like, right. this is the new frontier. It's like, that's not good. That's, that's dangerous language because if someone is new or a whole group of people is new, then you're justified to treat them with extreme scrutiny and with suspicion even, or mm-hmm. call it curiosity, call it, I just have concerns, call it, I'm just <laughs> confused, right? And, and it, it's, a, it's an ingenious way to deny people civil rights, but I thought it was especially fallacious and wrong if, as I was starting to see in the archival research, hold on, not only were there trans kids 50, 60, 70 years ago before they were getting puberty suppression, they were also going to the doctor and transitioning under a completely different medical model. And I was like, wait a minute, like, why do we not know this? Right. Why is this hidden? It's not even like the trans histories that we have or even the clinicians who saw these kids ever really talked about it. And so I had a feeling like, Oh, there's something going on here that we need to know. And that's sort of what launched me into the research for my book. You know, my main goal was just to prove that there were trans kids prior to this contemporary medical model, just to say, hey, you can't say we're new. We've been around a while, Our kid, the kids too, you know. Um, but I also wanted to tell a different story of trans history through the lens of children and through the ways that it turns out medicine and science actually are really fixated on children to understand or at least try to understand 
what sex is, um, you know, in terms of like sex differentiation, what gender identity is for everyone, um, what transition can mean, what hormones do you, what human development is. And actually a lot of core ideas that we have about what it means to be human come through the way that we understand children because our idea of what it is to be human generally takes the adult, right, as its reference point, but we aren't born as adults, right? So that's a big problem. <laughs> and that, you know, to put it to put it in a sort of silly way, right, that, um, you know, whole disciplines of science, uh, not to mention religion and, and culture and politics have tried to resolve, right? So there's actually a really, a really different way of looking at trans history that puts children in the center and tells us things that are really important about what science and medicine do and what kinds of harm they inflict. And so I actually did want to tell a story about kind of the eugenic history of trans medicine and its terrible impact um, on trans kids and also intersex kids. Um, but it really started off with me trying to make this political intervention and say, okay, no more calling trans kids new. You actually have to account for their history and you have to accept that um, this isn't just some sort of new phenomenon that we're dealing with right now, that that's actually sort of, um, I think, often a very bad faith um, argument that people make in order to try and deprive trans people and trans children of agency or the right to speak about themselves. So that's kind of how I got started. Um, but the details proved to be, as with all good research, even more interesting and strange than I than I would have expected. So I'll I'll let you I'll let you take us in wherever wherever you'd like to to go a little deeper. Well, I mean, I, th I think this is one of the reasons why I find the project of your book so compelling. I mean, there you, you've hit so many components of it and what uh, what you've just been saying, but I think fundamentally one of those myths that does get uh, carried forward by a lot of different people and often by uh, people doing the sort of hand waving thing of like, oh, well, I, I didn't know better. This is this is a totally new thing. This is a new thing to me is the like is the sort of myth that trans people are somehow a categorically novel uh, development that were perhaps like created by whole cloth in some way by the medical industry or by like medical intervention when you demonstrate very clearly I think in your book uh, that at least over the course of the history of the 20th century it was primarily trans people and in fact trans children often actively having to advocate for themselves and fight medical establishments. Absolutely. I mean, it's really interesting, right? Reality is almost the exact opposite of what people think when people think oh, it's big, big pharma, big, big estrogen and big testosterone that created trans people, <laughs> yeah. which is Famously really hilarious. Lucrative, right. uh, yeah. Yeah. Lucrative. Yeah. These hormones are cheap as hell. Like they don't cost anything to make. And, you know, they're just this, they're not even, you know, the funny thing about hormones too is like they barely qualify as medication because they're just the yeah. exact same chemical that our bodies also make. So like not very interesting, but the idea that that, that medicine invented trans people for some agenda is hilarious. In reality, <laughs> medicine was dragged kicking and screaming to serve trans people, especially in the United States. Um, the U.S. Was, was rather late and slow, actually, relative to other parts of the world in offering um, transition-related healthcare and especially, most notoriously, um, trans surgeries, which were just almost impossible to get in this country until well into the 1960s. Although, possible to get is still sort of a misnomer. I think they're incredibly possible and hard to get still today. Um, but yeah, in reality, rather than being um, sort of invented, or we often seen arguments that like, oh, trans people are totally duped by, by doctors, right? They just mm -hmm. blindly believe in this medical model. Uh, no, they don't. Um, it turns out that trans people had to push doctors to treat them, to see them, and to treat them with respect, right? There is a reason 
that medical science has been very interested in trans people over the past century, but it's not in order to help them transition. It's actually quite the opposite. Um, Most of the modern medical research that I look at, at really prestigious places in the US, Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, University of California, Los Angeles, Stanford. I mean, these are blue chip research facilities. You know, the work that they were doing was not to try and help intersex and trans people. They were trying to experiment on intersex and trans people who they saw as pathologically different from the norm in order to figure out how to develop medical um, therapeutics for sex and gender for the general population. This is actually something that I think doesn't get brought up enough when we talk about the history of medicine and the history of medical experimentation on minority populations, right? So in the US, there's a long history coming out of slavery of really violent, non-therapeutic, coercive experimentation. It started with enslaved Africans and then continues, obviously, in in notorious ways into Jim Crow. And we have famous examples of total, you know, eugenic and racist medical practice um, that basically stole data from um, Black people's bodies, like the Tuskegee medical experiments, or in the most literal example, to come back to Johns Hopkins, Henrietta Lacks, um, a, a poor Black woman who was dying of cancer and whose cancerous cells were harvested from her body without her permission and are now one of the most prodigious cell strains used in medical research that have generated billions of dollars of profit for medical corporations. Right? There's actually, the history is rather the opposite. It's, it's a history of medicine invading and stealing knowledge from um, minoritized bodies in order to develop a general medicine, right? So the history of um, medicine on enslaved Black women, for example, was used to create the field of gynecology, which actually used you know, procedures developed under hor- horrific conditions to treat white women, right? And so actually just totally whitewash where that data came from. Um, and, you know, the actual healthcare procedures designed out of those violent experiments were not even offered to those communities. And, and intersex and trans medicine offers a very similar history, in part because it's some of the same doctors doing all of them, right? You have intersex and trans kids and adults brought into clinics, experimented on with no regard for their humanity, not in support of their gender identities, very rarely allowing them to transition until well into the 1960s or 70s. And that information, that data is then used to figure out, okay, how are we going to give hormones to menopausal women? Or, you know, how do we, in the case of intersex medicine, the whole thing was used for horrific ends. How can we force infants to have normative looking genitals by performing painful surgeries on them without their consent that we may never even tell them we performed on them, right? I mean, these are like not happy stories. So quite to the contrary of anyone who thinks that trans people are somehow, you know, um, you know, the dupes of medicine or, or are in the pockets of big pharma, it's really quite the opposite. Um, they've been experimented on and taken advantage of. And then those procedures, that data, that information is not credited to them. They are often not even given access to the procedures that were developed out of experiments on them. And now, I mean, this is the total incredible irony. You have a state like Arkansas saying, well, we're going to ban trans healthcare. Right. And it's like, okay, so trans healthcare. The only thing that makes it trans is the word trans. The, the right. actual procedures, <laughs> by the way, who takes the most hormones in this country? It's not trans people. It's no. cis women, right? And right. there's nothing wrong with that, but it's just like they get handed out like candy. Or you have low T. Well, that's that's a real threat to your masculinity. Let's give you some testosterone. <laughs> but you don't have to go to 
a psychiatrist to evaluate your mental health to get that. You're just allowed to demand it, right? So it's really, it's, it's beyond irony because it's quite cruel, right? But the idea that, well, we're going to ban this healthcare that we developed that everyone else gets to have, but we also developed by stealing the data from trans kids' bodies. I mean, this is, it's such a violent kind of historical irony. Um, And and one that I sort of hope, you know, my my historical research just gives us sort of um, incontrovertible proof. It's like, you can get down in those details. The receipts in a historical monograph are... Endless. You look at those endnotes and, you know, they make your brain hurt. I don't even read them usually because they're so exhausting. I wrote them, but, um, you know, it's like this, this medical history is not known because um, it doesn't serve the purposes of, of the people who authored them. That's not, the doctors didn't want the story to be out. They did everything they could to protect right. their reputations and, and to, to serve a kind of project that actually wasn't trans-affirmative from the very beginning. Jules, one of the questions that I, I has been like running through my mind of reading your book and, and watching what's been happening in Arkansas is, you know, the, the whole line that gets trotted out is this, you know, line about uh, sort of the sort of imperiled innocent, you know, child who's, who's uh, being subject to all of this sort of uncertain, you know, oh, we just don't know uh, kind of medical practices. Um, but I mean, really what you end up showing uh, in the book is that the, the the medical establishment, any sort of practices uh, that become trans healthcare are being pushed for by uh, trans children and, and and maybe their parents themselves. So like that that myth is like so powerful, and it also seems like something as you're saying that is intentionally suppressed in the sort of official history and the sort of formal uh, kind of publication of uh, medical uh, research. So like how. Like, show us some of the receipts. Like, how did you begin, like, finding this? And, like, what does the evidence, like, look like? Yeah, it's a great question. And you're, and just to say that you're completely right there, right? The idea that, oh, we don't know. Mm-hmm. This is just a whole bunch of new experimental therapies. Yeah, that's not true. Now, there aren't a ton of peer-reviewed longitudinal studies in trans healthcare. And why is that? Because no one wants to do them, right? It's not because (laughs) we can't do them or they turned out bad. All the ones that we have overwhelmingly support trans people's choices. Um, but, But I think the more profound point that I realized in researching my book is like, you know, once you once you disabuse yourself of the idea that trans people are per se medical right? That Mm -hmm. there's something medically wrong with being trans or that, you you know, and of course the DSM reinforces that technically being trans is no longer a mental illness. Instead, you can be diagnosed with gender dysphoria and gender dysphoria, you know, isn't an ontological claim about who you are. It's just um, a sort of practical claim that you're suffering distress in the world because of the perceived discrepancy between, you know, what your body looks like and how you feel and how people treat you, right? There's a way we could even read gender dysphoria as being about transphobia. Not saying the DSM goes there, but we could. Um, Mm -hmm. But this whole sort of pathologizing model right? People tend to assume that, okay, well, if you're trans, there's something medically wrong, right? But what, what history shows us is, yeah, that's not true because the medicine wasn't always there, right? So if we go back before the 1950s, there's very little medical intervention possible other than basically horrific conversion therapy, um, which was practiced. And so trans people come to realize they're trans and they transition without medicine. That was the norm. And it still is the norm for a lot of people. Most trans people can't go to a doctor who's going to actually listen to them and know anything about their healthcare. But, um, you know, sort of more deeply to get into this kind of point, right, I think what we sort of see is that the logic of medicine 
right? You know, we, we're sort of in this era where, you know, a lot of corporate medicine is trying to set up patient-centered healthcare and more holistic <laughs> team-based Consumer driven. Consumer driven. Yeah. I know I'm like totally <laughs> stuck in one of these awful HMOs myself where they're like, <laughs> we love for you to call this hotline anytime you have questions about your trans healthcare. And then every time I call, they tell me a different thing that's not true. And then I never actually get anything done and nothing's ever oh, covered. God. It's amazing. But you know, well, before that's the this, whole point, you know? that's the whole point. Yeah. <laughs> it's rationing care by another means. But gosh, before this era, Oof. I mean, it was so much worse, right? You basically, what I noticed was I started with, um, so medical publications, right? Studies, textbooks, um, medical journals, the kinds of publications that if you go back to say the 1930s, 40s and 50s, I mean, doctors are publishing things, these things for each other. So, you know, they don't really expect the public to read them. So that, you know, they're not, they're not very rosy, but they're also very polished professional documents, right? And they tell a story that's supposedly about research. Like, you know, I had 12 transsexual patients who are adolescents and I did this and that hormone therapy with them. And here's what happened, right? Um, and, you know, you read that with, with a certain suspicion as a historian and say, okay, well, that's what the doctors, <laughs> you know, that's, right. that, that's the conclusion <laughs> yeah. they came to. It's interpretive, right? Medicine is interpretive. Science is interpretive. It's not, you know, objectivity is formed by... Um, by the person who's perceiving the experiment, right? Interpretation is inherent to how scientific data is produced. It's not neutral and just empirical. But my methodology was I would take, say, this published you know, medical journal, which is very easy to get my hands on, and say, okay, great. It looks like this endocrinologist at Johns Hopkins Hospital in the 1940s had a whole pediatric ward where he was toying with hormones with intersex and trans kids. Great. Now I'm going to go to Hopkins find the original medical records and materials in the archive that correspond to that study and basically see what really happened and look at the gap. Look right. at the gap between what the doctors say they did and the diagnoses, right? And the ca- they're building categories of diagnosis, right? So when in the 1950s, we see the emergence of this medical model that was called transsexuality. So, you know, before the word transgender, we used the word transsexual. So a transsexual is a new type of medical personality or character sort of being invented, that part is being invented by doctors, right? Um, So they need to figure out, according to them, what is a transsexual? How do you become a transsexual? How do you tell a transsexual from a non-transsexual? And how do you treat a transsexual, right? You know, these are things that like, if we're talking about, um, you know, say a totally, an, an illness that seems totally organic in our mind, like cancer, right? We wouldn't, we wouldn't snicker as much, but, but in this case we do, because it's a very weird kind of way to medicalize someone um, because it's investigating them rather than listening to what they're saying and saying, ah, okay. So you said, you know, you you feel yourself to be, you know, this sex instead of the one that your body is and you need these things to affirm your gender, right? That was certainly not how these doctors were operating, but they had to contend with real people, right? And real people don't just like roll over and let doctors do whatever they want, right? So when I went into the archives and looked at the real medical records, I, I was really surprised and, and happy to find that, you know, patients advocate for themselves. And in fact, they're really good at it, right? I'll tell right. you a story that I recount in the book. So in the 1930s is when some of the very first trans people start coming, showing up at hospitals, asking for things that we associate with trans medicine today. So there's not a lot of synthetic hormones available yet, um, but certainly plastic surgery 
right, is available to construct different kinds of genitals or like what we would call top surgery and bottom surgery today basically exist, you know, by the 1930s already. Um, You know, there are surgeries that have been developed in part for soldiers um, who, you know, suffered injuries, um, you know, in World War One, but also, um, you know, they were developed coercively um, to force a binary sex assignment on intersex children. But so anyway, some trans people start to catch wind of this and they know that, hey, Johns Hopkins Hospital in Baltimore, there's a urologist there, Hugh Hampton Young, and he can change people's sex. That's basically the way that that word spread. And so in the 1930s, you have people showing up like this um, young trans man that in the book I, I called by the pseudonym Bernard. So Bernard shows up, you know, had been assigned female at birth and had been living as a man for many years in small town Alabama. And he was engaged to be married to a woman. And so he felt that he needed to get sort of, you know, in order to convince um, a priest to marry them, uh, you know, he needed to get sort of medical proof that he was a man. Totally logical, very trans request. <laughs> so he shows up at Hopkins, right? And he goes to see Hugh Hampton Young and they have a consultation together. And I'm reading the doctor's notes, Young's notes. And Young is like, wow, this person is so interesting. You know, he's here, he shows up, the picture of manhood, right? And yet he says he was raised as a girl, but he's always felt himself to be a man. And he's sure, you know, he's got. Um, you know, male gonads just hidden inside his flesh. He can feel them sometimes, you know, he feels himself to have a penis and, you know, he's, he's madly in love with this woman and he's often mistaken for his dad. And, you know, he's really just definitely a man and, and nature, you know, made some kind of mistake. So, oh, okay, maybe he's intersex, right? And, and Young is like, well, great, fabulous. What do you want? And Bernard says, I'd like you to basically give me top surgery and any plastic surgery you can give me in terms of bottom surgery. And he's like, great, sounds good. You know, I got to send you over to my, you know, buddy endocrinologist just for a second opinion, you know, because this is pretty experimental medicine. And so Bernard goes over to the second um, endocrinologist, has a meeting with him. And then I read that endocrinologist letter back to Young. And the endocrinologist is like, my dude, have you been tricked? Like this, this person is not intersex medically. There's nothing biologically different about them. Um, what are you talking about? You are about to give them these surgeries? No, that, that doesn't make any sense at all. I, in fact, I'm very confused about what, what's up with them, but, but, I, but I think you were tricked. <laughs> and so they eventually come back to Bernard and say, hold on a second, you're not intersex and therefore we don't want to give you these surgeries and he just packs up and leaves town. Oh. I'm frustrated. But you know, I think what that story tells us is really interesting, right? It's not medicine had this idea of what trans people were. It's actually the opposite. Trans people show up at the doctor's door well before we even have any trans words to describe them, right? But they know who they are. They know what they need. They show up asking for medical care and they convince the head of urology at the Johns Hopkins Hospital, right? He's totally (laughs) on board. And it's just his, you know... um, more gatekeeping colleague who, you know, calls the whole thing off, but he got pretty damn close. Um, and so to me, that's like a really impressive story that tells us that, um, you know, trans people aren't defined by medicine. It's not that, um, what, what really the story of trans medicine is, is doctors ignoring what trans people know about themselves, refusing to entertain their personal knowledge, not listening to what they want and what they need. That's very consistent in all of the medical records I've read, and it clu- includes small children, right? And in the 1950s at Hopkins, when a very infamous psychologist, John Money, who sort of invented the concept of gender as we use it today, was, was seeing a lot of intersex and trans kids, 
he kind of hated them because the kids right. would refuse <laughs> all of his ridiculous theories about their bodies. And, you know, <laughs> bless kids. Like, they'll yeah. sometimes get in your face, right? And be like, Hell you know, yeah. so there's... And, and, and he would just, you know, label that as juvenile delinquency. This child is brain damaged right. or idiotic because he's refusing my authority to um, perf- have, like, painful, um, you know, surgery performed on him. There's one kid I write about in the book who is running around the ward on the hospital saying, someone call my mom. The doctor is going to cut off my, he says, going to cut off my wee-wee, which like is a real and present threat. Like John Money might tell a doctor to cut off, you know, your genitals and this is a five-year-old child. (laughs) And Money is like, well, if this child continues to be so delusional, you know, he's clearly going to be found to be mentally defective. And it's like, John, you're projecting, honey. Like that's really, (laughs) it's really a horrible thing to say about a kid too. Who's like obviously outwitting you. But I think these are like, (laughs) these are really the central kinds of stories that we need to be telling. This is what trans healthcare has looked like. It's trans people show up, they know who they are. They know what they need. And doctors say, no, everything you know is obviously not true. I just want to kind of experimentally study you to get some use out of it for me. And then I'm going to throw you away when I'm done. And any, if you challenge my authority, I will come down on you so hard and I'll kick you out of the clinic or I'll, you know, label you as delusional or diagnose you with a mental illness and ship you off to a psychiatric institution. And that actually happened a lot. So it's, it's really, the history is not only so different, from the way that these people today are like, we don't know what's going on with trans kids in medicine. It's so mysterious. No, it's not. They're just continuing to deny children's knowledge about themselves. I mean, this, I think, is the crux of what is so powerful about trans kids, right? Here you have young kids who will stand up in front of their parents, in front of every adult they know and say, hey, this thing you've been telling me my whole life that you assigned me at birth, you're wrong. I know better than you. I mean, that's, that's like really amazing. Um, and I think it really threatens a lot of adults. I think it scares parents. I think it threatens, um, you know, the way that children are expected to behave and submit to authority, right? And so I think the whole sort of like, well, we don't know what's going on with medicine is just an attempt to kind of reconsolidate parental and uh, adult authority. And so it's great to say children don't know what they're talking about. And by extension, doctors don't know what they're talking about. Whereas like trans people would say, yeah, doctors don't know what they're talking about, but that's because they don't listen to us. Not because, (laughs) you know, they have no (laughs) idea how to do their job and we have to criminalize them serving us. Right. Um, So it's really just sort of, again, one of these situations where the truth could not be sort of more opposite. And the situation is so like, the way it gets talked about is so divorced from reality. It's just like, if you hang out for five seconds in the historical archive, the whole house of cards of these anti-trans bills falls apart. And so, you know, I know why people don't know this history. It's not widely advertised. I was the first person to write a book about these kids. I get it. So I'm sort of on a mission just to kind of spread the good news that, hey, doctors are (laughs) bad, but not for the reasons that Republican state legislators say they're bad. (laughs) And trans kids are good and they know what's up. They've known what's up for a long time. Right, exactly. I mean, I love that you uh, brought up the fact that uh, sort of non-compliance is used as this oh. label when children um, are pushing back, trying to like push against doctors saying, no, this is this is what I want. This is what I need. Or like, I do not want you to do this to me. There's the idea that the child is somehow then defective, right? Because they're yeah. not responding to adult authority. And it's so interesting because often what happened to the children who were then institutionalized, right, who were labeled as so non-compliant that they were deemed 
deviant to the point of, you know, intellectual and developmental disability and then sent off to an institution or sent off to a psychiatric facility is that what that did is it removed the uh, ability for the child to not consent to the procedures. The doctors were able to experiment on children in those facilities anyways. I mean, that's how modern orthopedic surgery developed was on those children who were institutionalized in the 30s. And, And I think so often the the issue of like child safety, like, is any of this safe? Not only just like, is it safe to give children access to this kind of care? Um, But, you know, and as you point out, this is not something that like only trans kids get. There are plenty of children, some of as young as like seven or eight who go on puberty blockers because they like start going through puberty way too young. And and we use like this concept of safety, right? The safety of like, is it safe to even let kids do this both from a medical standpoint and a a sociological, more like cultural standpoint is such a huge part of this debate right now. But in a lot of ways, like really what the fact of the matter is, is what's being debated is like whether or not society wants to allow trans children to be at all to like even exist right like is so much of this question is like and this framing of like oh it's a new wave is it safe is border making in a way to try and exterminate or eliminate this category of of person from ever being a possibility exactly i mean it's a case where the word safety couldn't be a bigger red herring right, right. in fact the word safety is working to uphold the opposite of safety. And, you know, this is unfortunately, and I love the way that you are contextualizing that in the history of medicine, the history of childhood. You know, I'm a historian of childhood. And one of the things I often say when I'm teaching introductory classes to my undergrads is childhood is not a safe category. Um, And why? Mm. Because it actually took a historical process to make children dependent on adults. There's a specific time period in American history we can look to. After the Civil War, when actually childhood was a big terrain in which the distinction between a person and a thing was being renegotiated. And so black children were being pushed out of the the new category of white, idyllic, innocent childhood um, through all sorts of Jim Crow laws. Um, And, you know, basically what happens is we see a series of cultural transformations in American society that start to regard children as worthy of protection, as innocent and noble and good and easily corruptible. That was not the point of view before the late 19th century. Children were not dramatically treated that differently from adults, which I don't mean to say was good for them, right? They were obviously right. working, you know, dying and, and subject to all forms of abuse. But like they had a little, they actually had more civil rights before the late 19th century. There are a couple of instances um, in the in the antebellum period of children being able to vote in certain elections because they actually held property, right? So that actually was possible up to a certain point. But what happens in the late 19th century is we see this profound series of um, cultural transformations. You start to see child labor laws. So saying, okay, children actually can't work. It is against their nature to work. Instead, they must go to school, right? But if they don't go to school, then actually they must go to jail or go to a work (laughs) camp. There are all of these institutions. People don't know this, right? In the 19th right. century, there are all these sorts of paracarceral institutions set up in many states, and they're often set up in the, like, I'm in Pennsylvania, they're in, all in the middle of Pennsylvania, far in between the two major cities in the state, Pittsburgh and Philadelphia. And children are literally taken away from poor families, from immigrant families, and from Black families, taken away by the state and shipped off on trains you know, sometimes they were called orphan trains into mm-hmm. the middle of the state and put into workhouses 
where they're basically just doing manual labor um, as indentured children until they aged out. And that was supposed to be for their good, right? Because if they stayed on the streets um, of the big cities, they would become corrupted by moral depravity and sex work and labor, right? And so you have all of these legal establishment of a separate juvenile justice system, which was actually most, you know, we think of that as, oh, well, that's probably a good thing. Kids shouldn't be treated as adults. But the first juvenile court was in Chicago in, in the early 1900s. You know, first of all, children had no right to counsel, so they had no lawyer. They had to just appear in front of a judge, and a judge could do anything that he wanted. A lot of children were basically punished by being turned into indentured servants and sent to live in rich families' houses as their servants, unpaid, until they aged out at 21. So, like, you know, there's this whole series of cultural transformations that take children and forcibly make them dependent on adults' mm-hmm. power. That took that takes work. It's not a natural state. It's not a natural social order, right? We have to manufacture children's dependency and children's vulnerability, right? And so I think what we have to understand then is that childhood is not a safe state of being. It's very dangerous. Children are at the mercy of their parents, their guardians, their teachers, their doctors, their psychologists, right? All of these different kinds of adult actors who have immense power over them. And we see, I think, some of the most horrific outcomes of that in exactly the kind of institutional context that you were just talking about. You know, one of the most chilling stories that I talk about in the book is of a young Black trans girl um, in New Jersey, who in the, you know, in the, I believe in the early 1960s, if I'm, if I'm remembering correctly, you know, was, was placed in the foster care system um, because, you know, the city that she lived in was just sort of being heavily targeted by the state of New Jersey, um, you know, in a sort of Jim Crow sense and, and really this sort of aggressive crackdown on, on the Black family. And so this child is put into the system and that system identifies her gender, which she completely knew. She could very easily articulate as a young teenager, age 13 or 14, oh, I'm a girl. I'm not a boy. And, um, you know, these these social workers and, and um, foster care folks say, okay, so you're you're mentally ill. And they send her off to a child psychiatric institution where she then spends like decades, decades. And, you know, I read these reports, they had to file, you know, a psychiatrist had to do an annual evaluation to continue justifying this child being held against her will and, of course, not being allowed to transition, right? And every year, you read these superficial garbage reports by psychiatrists that are so obviously fallacious. They diagnosed her with schizophrenia, with... Mm. Um, Classic. Like, yeah, and pathological homosexuality, right? So they're refusing to read her gender identity and they're just saying, no, you're a sex pervert instead. (laughs) Um, Which, you know, is very common. It's still happening right now. That's like some of the language we're hearing today, you know, that no, there's no trans women, they're just sex perverts, right? And and so what happens is she spends her entire childhood locked up, right? And year after year after year, and you know, the reports don't say what happened to her during all of that time, I can only imagine how horrifying she was treated. Never mind, her entire trans childhood was basically jailed, right? De facto right. jailed. And the only reason she ever got out is that in 1980, a trans woman took over us over, um, you know, an, an endocrinology practice in New York City and was reviewing old patient files and saw that this that this um, girl, you know, had been on the radar of her 
you know, predecessor. And she was like, oh my God, this is horrifying. And she petitioned to have her released. And, you know, finally she's released and she's like almost 30 years old now. And her entire childhood is wiped away. And who knows what they were using her captivity to do in that institution. Like think just like the the volume of psychiatric data that has been generated and the amount of pathologizing of social conditions and actually racism and poverty and inequality Mm -hmm. that gets pathologized and locked out, you know, has really taken the vulnerability of children and especially black children who don't even enjoy that sort of fantasy of innocence that justifies protection, right? It's a bad fantasy. It doesn't serve anyone, but it like really doesn't serve black children um, because they're, they're understood to operate and live outside of it, inside it, in that, in the terms of that fantasy. I mean, just the amount of violence done in the name of that. But that's where we get so much medical data. I mean, that's right. what's really so disturbing, right? There are whole fields of medicine, like you said, that basically appear from studying people in captivity, in conditions of captivity and, and semi-incarceration. And unfortunately, that's actually one of the main histories of trans childhood is that mm-hmm. kind of situation. That girl in that psychiatric institution is actually a much more common story than a white middle-class child making right. it into a gender clinic. And, and that's right. really sobering. And I think that is what should change our point of view today, because this is still the problem. When we talk about these gender clinics or, you know, these puberty suppression, pediatric clinics that Arkansas is imagining to ban. I don't think there are any in Arkansas, so (laughs) well done. But let's let's say there was, right? I mean, I know these clinicians, I talk to them all the time. One of their biggest problems is their overwhelming clientele are very upper middle class, highly educated, white suburban families. Why? Because they have the time and the money to advocate for their kids. That's all it is. It's as simple as that. If you are working, two jobs, you do not have time to take off and go to school and advocate for your kid to research all these medical things, right? Figure out who you can talk to, what clinician you can trust, get your kid to a doctor and pay a lot of the expensive out-of-pocket expenses that come with this, right? And so actually, most trans kids who are not this kind of upper middle class white child we see reflected in the media, especially trans kids of color, especially trans girls who are black or Latinx, Um, you know, they're more likely still to have their gender, their transness read as disruptive in school and get suspended, expelled, funneled into the school to prison pipeline, end up in juvenile justice system or in the foster care system or in any other number of racial uh, surveillance and incarceral, incarceral systems that are actually taking their gender as the object to punish or as the justification for punishment and regulation. And that's actually where trans childhood is transpiring right now, right? And, and that, so part of the problem for me is like, even if we win in fighting back against these bills, which I hope we do, they're so severely unconstitutional, I actually don't really expect any of them to, to stand up in court. It's not, it's a, such a hollow victory, right? Yeah. right? Of course, kids should have access to the healthcare they need. But when that's only a tiny slice of the kids, then actually most trans children aren't even being served. We're always playing defense here, trying to win. Kind of not a big win, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Medicine as we have it today, not a big win. Uh, (laughs) I think most trans people would agree. (laughs) Like, yeah, we're not loving the medical care we're getting. We don't enjoy being pathologized. We don't enjoy how eugenic the rationing of care is. And what about all the other institutions that really prevent people from even getting into a doctor's office in the first place? So the situation is just so different than the way that it's talked about. Right. Um, but, you know, you kind of have to have this critical eye and think beyond trans as a kind of medical word 
about, say, your gendered brain or your gendered interiority, right? It's not about identity, right? It's about power and politics. And, and that's what it's always been about. Exactly. I mean, I love that you brought up the that story of the young girl who's institutionalized mm-hmm. because one of the things that I think is so fascinating and inspiring to me about reading your work is to see so many parallels to how we, you know, labeled and framed and turned, you know, disabled people into Uh these sort of objects of dependency and how through, you know, generations and decades that became this gigantic process of uh, pathologizing, labeling, then allocating resources and finding ways to make these labeled bodies into this uh, financial center, right? So you have people who are declared dependent, taken out of society, put into institutions, as you're saying. Um, In your book, you talk about how often some of the Black children that you're talking about, the doctors didn't even have the decency or thought to include the child's actual name in yeah. medical records. They would not interview them or, or for the most part, I mean like that, that, you know, whiteness is produ- like profoundly overrepresented in the archive. Right. Yeah. And, and I think you, you see this a lot um, also like in the nexus of disability and there's a lot of overlap here because I think one of the things that, that is so interesting about the, the way that we've, We've built up these medical systems of verifying the justification for someone to be removed from society or denied resources is fascinating. Like the case of people who are institutionalized against their will pretty much until the 80s, in order to get like out of a uh, asylum, you had to agree with the psychiatrist that you were crazy. And if you were unwilling to admit that you agreed with the psychiatrist's diagnosis and assessment of you, if you were unwilling to mirror the the frame that was being you know projected on you, that was proof that you deserved to maintain, like, be incarcerated still. And and so much of that sort of, like, process of, like, removing personhood and removing agency and creating these, like, cultural ideas of, like, powerlessness, like, that in and of itself does so much harm that it almost doesn't really matter what happens with these laws at the end of the day because the idea is out there. It's reproducing and it's exerting power over people's lives, both in its presentation of children as powerless and people who do not deserve agency, autonomy, who do not know themselves, who cannot know themselves, who cannot consent, who who cannot possibly know what's best for them, right? And at the same time, like, you know, the, the fact that they're that they're new, as you're saying, or being portrayed as this new category, it it creates the doubt culturally. Right. It puts that mm-hmm. principle of values out there. And there is so much harm that's just done from like simply asking the question, are some people disposable in the public sphere? Right. And ultimately, like that's so much of what's going on here is like these bills are beyond just restricting healthcare in one specific geographic locality. They're about asserting publicly that certain people really don't matter. Exactly. This is state sponsored eugenics. And you know, I'm glad that Chase Strangio at the the ACLU has been using that word, you know, to describe these bills, but I don't see I don't see enough other people picking up on that. 
if the state is declaring that an entire population of people are not worthy of citizenship, not worthy of healthcare, are disposable because the premise here is that they will be eradicated, right? right. That's that's state-sponsored eugenics. Yeah. It's a racist logic that, you know, people think of eugenics as this, oh, this awful pseudoscientific moment that happened a long time ago. Yeah, <laughs> yeah no. Right. Eugenics is very much the principle on which all healthcare is managed today. In fact, yeah. contemporary eugenics are even harder to contest because they're more savvy. Exactly. The language of race was dropped in the 1950s, dropped out in the aftermath of World War II. But so many of the actual literal techniques of eugenic care, rationing care, determining who is worthy of health care, um, you know, determining under what conditions people will receive health care, and then imagining that some people's health depends on other people's disposability, that has only increased as a principle. And, and, and right. this is why I think actually, yeah, trans, um, trans politics, disability politics, and anti-racist politics are actually all intertwined here and actually really reinforce one another um, because that's that's what happened in the history of trans medicine. This is one of the trickier stories that I tell in my book because it's 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 counterintuitive to people who haven't been exposed to this logic, right? But basically the idea goes that white trans children and intersex children are seen as pathological starting in the 1950s. There's something considered abnormal about them, but they're considered redeemable. They can be made normal if they submit to medicine, right? right? They have to submit. They have to be made into binary boys and girls. And if they don't submit to that, they're not redeemable. But there's this sort of idea that basically white civilization depends so much on sexual difference. This is a 19th century racist idea that just continues into the 20th century implicitly, right? That it matters so much to white society that boys and girls, men and women, be as sexually different as possible that we have to forcibly correct anyone who isn't that way naturally, right? Um, And so those people can be offered medical care under this very rigid gatekeeping kind of circumstance. If you're willing to profess that you are exclusively one sex or the other, if you'll you know, agree to as binary a transition as possible, if you agree to pass and go stealth, never reveal that you're trans and be proper and heterosexual, this is the actual diagnostic criteria from the right. 1950s and 60s, then if you're also pretty enough and like basically hot enough to your doctor, okay, fine. <laughs> Right. I mean, this is not even a joke, right? They, like only beautiful women were getting the surgery in the 1960s, right? Um, and it's, so it's just so obvious, right? And then at the same time, you have whole other populations that are told, oh, no, you're not eligible for this, right? Black and brown kids, well, your bodies aren't plastic enough. You, you can't change your sex. You can't change your gender. That You don't have that capacity. You're not worthy of care. You're not part of this techno-scientific you know, um, rationalist American sort of imperialist fantasy of science (laughs) directing the good life, the suburban life in the 1950s, right? You're not part of that. So instead, we're going to put you in a psychiatric institution where we can extract value from you. We're going to kick you out of society, right? And make you dependent, deprive you of your rights, take away your ability to be cared for, take away your ability to make money and punish you, right? This is the actual story that we're looking at. This is why things that seem race neutral in medicine are not. They're eugenic. Certain forms of care are rationed and assigned to certain populations directly in proportion to the way that they're withheld from other populations, right? And and that's what I don't think people 
you know, I, I understand why that's not obvious, right? Because there's no language saying that that's being done. But when we just, all we have to do is look at outcomes, right? It's the exact mm-hmm. same reason why, you know, Black maternal health outcomes in the U.S. are like disturbingly um, worse than they are yeah. for white women, right? It's not that, you know, medical protocol doesn't say if your patient is white, treat them differently than if they're black. But it's this history that bears down in the way that care is delivered, you know? Um, and, and, and it happens so much with trans people. I mean, every trans person I know who has ever interacted with any doctor has a story of eugenics to tell. It's just the way, whether it's that story where you have to perform that you're like the perfect white angel who deserves to be taken care of, right? Or if you're like me and you're a trans woman of color, having to, you know, basically prove that you're innocent and good enough to deserve um, care. I mean, I've had to go through those hoops myself in the 21st century. So it's not, you know, it's, it's a clear and present danger. And I think exactly as you were saying, these bills, right? This is just, I mean, it's going to be like dominoes, right? I mean, here we are. Mm-hmm. It's not a coincidence. We're in the second year of a pandemic where over half a million people have died, most of whom did not have to die. Their deaths were preventable, but they were regarded explicitly as disposable life for the economy. I mean, it's not even, it's not even implicit, right? You know, they were not hiding it. They were not hiding it. You had all those Republicans that were like, well, we're going to have to kill grandma because Walmart, you know, can't, you know, whatever, can't close, right? And many Democrats too. Oh yeah, it's way across the spectrum, right? This is normal. um, This is normalized consensus political belief, right? And so in this aftermath of this, where we've seen what happens when the state abandons any claim to provide public health, right? We're seeing another attempt to justify that, but justify it using a scapegoat that gets people riled up. It's much easier to say trans people are the pretext, right? But it's no coincidence that two days before, you know, this bill was passed in Arkansas, uh, several days before the governor signed an incredibly regressive anti-abortion bill. It's the same exact principle. Some people don't deserve healthcare rights. We will just take them away and we will leave them to become disposable. Women's bodies are not to be respected um, and doctors can't even provide care to them. I mean, this is really what's at stake here. We're going to see such huge ramifications of this kind of governance because it is not, you know, it's become so sophisticated that you don't have to, you know, go out and say, hello, I'm a state senator and my platform is genocide for trans people, <laughs> right? Instead, you just get to say, I'm protecting women. <laughs> and commit exactly. genocide. Like- well, the, the, the Arkansas Act is called like the SAFE Act. Save, uh, this is also ironic considering everything that we've been talking about and what, what you were talking about at the beginning of our discussion, but uh, SAFE Act or Save Adolescents from Experimentation <laughs> Act. God. Well, I mean, well, okay, all right. This is hilarious, especially because two days after this bill is passed, right, the governor of Arkansas yesterday lifted the, um, or I guess it was maybe today, lifted the mask ban in Arkansas, or ma- sorry, the mask mandate in Arkansas, and opened up vaccinations to people as young as 16, which is not approved by the FDA yet. So only certain types of experimentation are allowed. The other ones are not safe. The ones that help us reopen the economy, the ones send that are children not back in to fact school. experimentation. Exactly. The ones that are actually like, you know, that have decades of proof that they are clinically safe. That's the that's the danger, of course. But I think this broader conversation, you know, Jules, I, I want to ask your your take on it, because, you know, a lot of the way that I, I'm seeing these bills covered, you know, because there is there's and there is some truth to this, which is that um there, there's the story about the Alliance Defending Freedom, this sort of like, 
you know, far right, racist, um, anti-trans, anti-LGBT generally uh, organization, which is just like, you know, it's it's like the stuff of movies uh, kind, kind of uh, organization like and it's pretty evident that they like are writing the text to these bills. Right. And doing that. But like it's, it seems like one implication of our this discussion is that in thinking about who are the the forces militating in this story and what the point is, is that it goes beyond just this, you know, sort of very extreme far right organization, essentially proving to their donors that they can get shit done, that it it seems much larger than that. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like the cynical read here and the easiest read, the one that I have seen the media pick up on is like, okay, this is the GOP's midterm fundraising strategy. Right. And Mm -hmm. like, wow, thanks a lot. Um, you know, that's like really, (laughs) really fucking cruel, but yeah, there's a lot more going on here. Um, and this is something that I think is really important because the way that, you know, the anti-trans forces have portrayed this issue is that it's so narrow, right? It's trans people only and trans people means puberty suppression for kids or like playing sports, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And that's not actually true. And so I can see why people are sort of like, well, I don't know what to think about that. I don't know that much about that. And they just see it in such a narrow lens. But then we look at who's all on the same side of this debate, right? And this is where I think actually progressives and the left need to do some do some house cleaning, right? We have absolutely, uh, yeah. Yes. yeah. We have right wing <laughs> hate groups here, right? Um, we've got GOP legislators, white evangelical Christians. I mean, these are not surprising folks. They've been doing culture wars since the term was invented, right? But then, who else do we have? We've got anti vaxxers, anti mask folks. We've got so self proclaimed feminists, right? Trans exclusionary feminists, turfs, people who claim they're progressive. We've got all these white gay men. Um, media figures, you know, Glenn Greenwald and mm-hmm. most recently Andrew Sullivan, who are like, oh, well, of course I'm progressive. I just happen to completely hate trans people and want them to be eradicated from the face of the earth. Okay. <laughs> it's the JK Rowling club, right? right. It's like, I, I don't have a problem with trans people. I just, I just want to keep lesbians from extinction. Yes, exactly. <laughs> These most, uh, most outrageous, like hilarious, almost it would be hilarious if not for what they If it were, weren't tragic. They yeah. yeah. And also if they weren't right. making tons of money off of this, by the way. Um, but, but when we look at where does this stuff end up online, right? Because I actually mm-hmm. think that's a really important part of the conversation is this trans trans moral panic, hysterical kind of sex panic, basically, right, is circulating online across a vast swath of sort of disinformation, anti-democratic authoritarian um, spaces and movements, right? And so, you know, the TERFs, feminists, you know, they'll go on all day about how they don't support you know, these regressive bills or they're not, you know, or sometimes they actually do. Sometimes they support things more aggressive than these bills. But, you know, they'll say, well, I don't support evangelical Christian fundamentalism, you know, running this country, but yeah, you're on their side, right? And (laughs) and actually it's the language that we can trace, right? So one of the phrases I've been looking a lot at in the media lately and its circulation is this phrase that's used to completely deny what trans femininity, trans girlhood, and trans womanhood are, and instead call them biological males, right? Which is factually incorrect. Um, Also, like, I don't know what these people think biology is, but as a historian (laughs) of the history of sex, come at me, please. I've got, you know, it's like endocrinology says you're wrong. Genetics says you're wrong. Psychology (laughs) says you're wrong. I mean, I don't know. You can pick literally any field of science and it will say there's no such thing as a biological male. But in any case, um, 
you know, they're using this kind of, actually I consider that a form of sexual harassment. So it sexualizes um, trans women and girls, right? And it turns them into a fantasy of a male predator. Basically reduces trans women and girls to a fantasy of a penis, right? And that's actually really kind of violent language to use. But if we, know, if we look at where this language travels online, right? Notice that, you know, um, in January at CPAC, Trump suddenly is using that language, right? He, he never used that language during his presidency, regardless of all the crazy shit that he pulled um, in terms of anti-trans policy. You see this language circulating through anti-trans feminism, hard-right mm-hmm. evangelicals, Breitbarty kinds of hard-right news services, you know, on Reddit. And then in like conspiracy theory land, you see it in QAnon, right? All these kinds of groups that are spreading disinformation and engaging in really wild, violent fantasies about children, right? Like you have these, all these supposed <laughs> culture groups whose, whose calling card is all I'm thinking about all day is the violent torture and sexual abuse of children, which isn't ha- the, 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 the kind of abuse they're claiming they're worried about doesn't happen. So it's kind of like, so you're just telling us this is on your mind all day. Okay. <laughs> and then you support bills that actually sexualize, right. And bring harm and abuse children. And so it's like, hold up, hold up, right? Trans, anti-trans sentiment is being used to promote a culture of child abuse and right. child sexualization, which is exactly what they claim not to be doing. So, you know, hello, projection, um, which they don't <laughs> like. When I called Abigail Schreier, you know, someone engaged in projection, you know, online, I, I was hounded for days by people claiming that they would sue me into the dustbin of history for God. actually just reading the words <laughs> that she says out loud, right? Oh my um, God. But, but what I think was going on here, right, is like, whatever the, the terrible, cynical, cold money and politics calculus of these GOP state legislators that is just the tip of the iceberg. When we are mm-hmm. talking about right-wing ethno-nationalist authoritarian political movements that are against democratic norms, right? They don't want democracy. They want aggressive, violent state intervention into people's lives. They want to eliminate health, public health care, public education, and in some cases are calling for, you know, forms of white supremacy, race war, right? And they see, right, you know, trans kids, the same... You know, it might be like J.K. Rowling's like, I'm just so worried about lesbians that transition. I don't know if that's what she sounds like. Sorry. Sorry, J.K. I just, <laughs> I've just defamed your voice. But, um, you know, I, if I she, think she'll survive. I think she'll survive. But for yeah. every, every woman, white woman doing that in public, there's also a white man who's a proud boy supporter who's saying they're taking away our girls' wombs. And it's mm-hmm. the mandate of white women to reproduce. And so they can't transition. They can't become men. That's why they're concerned because their fantasy that white people are imperiled, right? And so it's like, um, if you're all on the same side here, then that's a really different conversation, right? And so I think all the respectability politics that people are getting away with are outrageous. People like Schreier, people like Barry Weiss, people like J.K. Rowling, mobilizing the innocence and sentimentality accorded to white women in our culture to justify all these sorts of heinous politics that when we see them embodied in, you know, proud boys, Mm -hmm. you know, open carrying assault rifles, it's much easier to shout down and say, that's ridiculous. But then at a certain point, we have to ask, why are all of these people on the same side when it comes to trans rights? Mm, Is that really something that we're just going to let stand? And I don't, you know, they have such a monopoly on the media, right? Mm -hmm. Trans people are not working as journalists. They're not being employed as journalists. We have actually very little access to publishing in general. Trans people can write novels and poetry and make TV. That's it. Um, You know, it's actually very hard 
to get your voice out there otherwise. And so I really think that there's, there's something very disturbing going on. And that's why, to me, it's like this issue obviously is, is of immense concern to trans folks, to me, you know, as a researcher, as a trans woman. But it's also like, there's a lot at stake here, right? Mm-hmm. What, what direction are we going politically, um, you know, in a way that's going to have long-lasting repercussions? And it's going to mean so much for so many populations, disabled people, immigrants, people of color, right? Women, it's not just, I mean, trans people fit into all of those categories too, but it's not just a narrow concern over trans healthcare. There is a lot going on here. Um, and that's, that's really sort of something I'd like to see people be more aware of. Cause I imagine that's, that, that might be that, that there's your motive to stand up. Right. And do something, right. right. If you're not really into, um, you know, white nationalist fantasies that girls <laughs> only purpose is to reproduce then like, you might want to support trans rights, right? Like, I think you should want to support <laughs> trans rights because people have the right to a dignified life and it's not mm-hmm. up to you to decide who gets to exist in the world. But, you know, apparently that's a very high bar these days in American politics. So <laughs> let's just go with the straight up. We don't want like extremely white supremacist, Christian fundamentalist, um, authoritarian fascist state. Like, you know, I, I, I hear just that that's something people minimum. don't like. Yeah, just <laughs> yes. ba- bare minimum request. Yeah. Bare minimum. Yeah. Maybe actually as a final, uh, final point, I was thinking it might be fun to sort of end like on the same vibe as the conclusion of the book. Like, Mm. what are your thoughts on that? Thanks. Yeah. I mean, so, so, you know, my book, which is an academic book, so I'm always happy to get to talk about it, um, you know, in a more conversational way. So, you know, please go have a read if y'all want to, but, um, you know, just to, to go there, right. Where I end up in the book is like, okay, so what, what's really the takeaway here from this history of trans children, right. Where they've been really, used and abused by modern medicine to set up a system that then was used to ration care and determine who counts as trans enough to receive care. And that 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 distinction ended up mostly being about race. So white trans children and white trans folks have had the most access to care and black trans folks and trans folks of color and poor trans people have largely been excluded from the medical model that we've created. And so what's our takeaway? What do we need in order to stand up for trans kids, right? And it's not what we're seeing right now. It's not conceding to the medical model. It's not saying, you know, it's like there's that, that, there was that viral video that went around of that father in Missouri who had testified at um, a state legislative meeting or a committee meeting about their anti-trans bill. And this video was retweeted by, or it was tweeted by the ACLU and got tons of play. Everyone was like, you must watch this heartfelt video. And it's a really, I, this is where I really broke with, 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 with a lot of advocates. I was like, this video is horrifying. It's basically, if you haven't seen it, right, it's this dad who gets up in front of the committee and says, hi, I'm a lifelong Missourian. I am a dad and a business owner. And he's like, you know, wearing a suit. He's very respectable. And he's like, let me tell you a story about how much I hated my trans daughter. And he literally goes on for like two minutes describing in detail how harsh and mean and harmful he was to his own daughter. And he's like, don't worry, guys, I get it. I hated my trans kid. I I did everything I could to make her life impossible. And then one day, I realized that was bad. And now I realize (laughs) she's just a normal girl and she can be normal. And so his closing plea to the legislators is like, don't worry, I get it. We're all, we all hate trans people, but you know, you gotta, (laughs) gotta understand that they could be normal. And actually more importantly, you can't touch my child. That's my property. That's basically his argument. And it's a very common argument. Children are treated semi as property under the law. Um, So he's basically like, hi, 
government, you're not allowed to touch kids. Give my daughter back to me. Me, the man who hated her until like very recently, right? And I well, was, and, and know, it's like a classic argument for anyone who's treated as a, surplu- a, sur- a surplus population. Exactly. Though, basically, it's like, well, we don't like them, but we got to keep them around because they could get a job one day and contribute to the economy. We all know we hate these people and would right. just drown them if we could. But, but if you you're know. taking the moral high road, we go, you know, they go low, we go high. So right. that means that despite your hate, you've got to suck it up and deal with the freaks and weirdos because morally speaking, they deserve some table scraps. This guy is like auditioning for American History X2 or something. <laughs> I mean, basically, right? He's like, you know, I would have never liked trans people, but I unfortunately, one of them turned out to be my kids. So now I've got to like do something about that, you know? And it's like, okay, so this is not this is to me not a victory. This is not the language I want to see out there opposing these bills. There was nothing trans, it was actually like the most transphobic, transmisogynist possible defense of trans children I've almost ever seen. And so I was very <laughs> alarmed when this became the sort of party line on, on progressives or, on, you know, on sort of the liberal side of it. It's like, yeah, this is terrible. If we win on those terms, what, trans kids get to be returned to what, their families, which are a very dangerous place for most of them, um, including this guy who had openly admits to it. And that's why so many trans kids are, are homeless and kicked out of homes or have to run away, right? That's not a win. So what do we really need if we're not going to concede to the terms of this transphobic, uh, genocidal kind of debate, so-called debate, right? There's no need for a debate either. Um, what my basic premise my basic argument at the close of my book is really simple, but it's actually really hard. Right. It's that we have to move away from looking at trans children and saying, oh, trans children. Okay, so they're trans people who haven't grown up yet. They're going to be the key to finding out what makes someone trans, right? And so every time a trans <laughs> child is like, hello, my pronouns are she, her. People are like, no, 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 no. How did that happen? Are you sure they're she, her? Let me question everything about who you are and let me use my imagination about who you might grow up to be one day to override who you are right now. Right. right? So this discussion of puberty blockers as buying more time actually I think is a terrible argument um, because it's like, okay, so you're just saying that you actually don't really think your child should be trans and you just want to buy more time for them to not be trans later? Like, um, that's not very nice. So instead... I say we need to shift, radically shift our culture away from just reluctantly acknowledging there are trans kids or acknowledging that they are trans in order to try and exterminate them because those are the same premise. Mm-hmm. They, they work from the same premise. And instead, we need to desire that they're not just that there be trans kids in the world, but welcome it. Want trans mm-hmm. children to live trans childhoods, not yeah. box them back up, shove them back into their families and hide them from the world, right? That's not what we want. That's not actually safe. And so to learn to actually really want trans children in the world would be a profound, profound Mm -hmm. shift in our cultural attitudes. Even a lot of trans people have struggled with that, right? They're like, well, my life is so hard. I wouldn't wish that on anyone. Okay, sure. But like, we have to learn to wish that people be trans. Like this is a fundamental anti-eugenicist kind of plank that or platform that I'm advocating for here to learn to really love and respect children, to to treat what they know about themselves as true and not constantly question who they are, not undermine them at every turn, listen to what they know, ask them what they want, support them in that journey and watch them succeed. 
right? And learn from them. My God, are we arrogant in imagining we know more about gender than children? I'm sorry. Like, you know, as someone who wasn't able to, to come out as a kid, when I meet a trans kid who's like 12 years old and has been able to figure this out and explain it to adults, I'm like, you're a fucking rock star. You know shit that goes way beyond my pay grade as a person with a PhD because you figured out how to pull this off. And you're like, trans people are so incredibly resilient and smart and cunning and figure out how to do what they need to survive. And so we can just celebrate that and then actually work to make it easier, right? But that's actually, a, we're so far from that, right? No one, I haven't seen anyone get up you know, to testify in these bills and say, hey, I'm against this bill because I want kids to be trans. I have not heard that once, right? It's almost unsayable. And that says so much about how the the deck is stacked against us right now. And I think that's just really unfortunate, right? I mean, it's, of course, we're led to treat children that way. We're led to, you know, be suspicious of their identities and that's that's baked into our culture. But like, we really, I just don't think we're going to win any measurable improvements for the livelihoods of trans kids unless we actually learn how to say we want them in this world. And then considering everything we've been talking about today and how all these other you know, issues, other people's lives are bound up in what happens here, it really matters, right? If you mm-hmm. actively want trans kids in the world, you're working towards a more just world, right? You're working towards a world where people who are, have been oppressed, right, are not scrutinized <laughs> when they ask for basic human rights. And then we get to move beyond. I want us to move beyond this life and death stakes, right? It's so painful to see people having to get up and say, well, if you pass this bill, kids will die, right? We need trans childhood to mean more than live or die. Trans people deserve right. way more than right. just being, mm-hmm. being put in the terms of life or death. Or, you know, like for trans girls of color, trans young trans women of color, they deserve more than being framed as people to be murdered or statistics, right? It is just not enough. This is not how you treat a whole group of human beings. And we need to be much more bold. We need to be demand a lot more. I think we really need to to be to be as as strong and capacious as we can. And for me, the basic value that that involves for everyone is just to sit with yourself and say, okay what would it really mean for me to want children to be trans? Really to want that. That's a big thing. It's a big transformation. But I think if you can start to think of it in those terms and start from there, then you can start to think about, okay, well, if, if that's my premise, if I really want kids to be trans, then what are my politics, right? And yeah. so I actually right. think in this case, it's good to start with your feelings because so much of how transphobia works is by getting in inside of us and internalizing all of these ridiculous um, things that are illogical because they feel like they're true, right? And so that's my bottom line over and over again. We don't even yet want trans kids. And until we do, frankly, we don't deserve them, right? That's one thing I (laughs) I say also in the conclusion of the book is, yeah, they don't belong to us. Um, First of all, because that's gross. I don't think children should belong to, we don't own them. They're not objects, right? Um, But more profoundly, we we haven't earned the right to take care of them. We haven't earned the right to support them because we have put them into a situation in this world where they're so in danger all mm-hmm. the time and subject to such unimaginable stress and harm. We have, we have not even deserved their attention. We don't even yet deserve the things that they know and the incredible ways that they have reimagined what it's possible to be like in terms of gender in this world. We don't even deserve that yet. And I mean that across the board, you know, even, yeah. even trans activists, we need to do more to earn the incredible privilege that it is to know that there are trans children 
in our midst and that we get to travel this life with them. I mean, it's such an immense privilege. I think if you talk to any trans person, you know, one of the things we often say amongst ourselves is like the best part of being trans is other trans people. You just get this incredible like um, camaraderie and this world of people who get it. And like, you know, to mm-hmm. be trans in this world, you got to be really smart. You got to figure out shit that's like, you know, it's like really high pay grade. Like you get access to a whole experience of the world that goes way beyond what most people could even imagine. And the rewards are huge. And so for us to, to, to acknowledge that about kids, we really have to earn their respect their respect and their trust. And I just don't think we've done that as a culture. Hell yeah. Yeah. I I couldn't agree more. And I, I think part of what is so urgent is for more discussions to really talk about what are the parameters that we're using to define personhood, because so much of this is tied into like, this desire to scientifically verify and justify need, mm. right? Instead of responding to needs and working towards survival. And I, I really appreciate your work because, I mean, as I said, it's like this missing piece to the, the eugenics puzzle in mm. a lot of ways that's so important to really think through, like, what is the role of the child in here, not as the future adult, but as an as individual that has personhood from day one? You know, and mm-hmm. it's it's such a difficult question. And I really, really appreciate you coming on today, Jules. This was so much fun. And yeah, thank you. It was awesome. This Thanks. is great. Oh, well, my pleasure. And y'all's questions were just so thoughtful. And, you know, I appreciate having a kind of, I've been doing a lot of media interviews this week where I have, you know, two minutes to, <laughs> to, to make about 10,000 <laughs> points. Glad to do it. Glad to do it. But like, you know, having the chance to kind of dig in here and think about the broader implications, like, I too have experienced my own work as kind of providing that missing puzzle piece to my own thinking um, about my place in the world, about how eugenics operates. And in a lot of ways, right, if people are sort of sitting here in 2021 and being like, shit, this world fucking sucks on by every measure <laughs> yes. for 99% of people. Why? Well, here's yeah. one answer. This is right. one useful history and there's actually stuff we can do about it. So I, I just, yeah. I really appreciate you drawing these connections also and, um, and, and yeah, you know, making, making the issue of trans kids, you know, part of something broader and bigger, which I, which I have long felt it to be. So thank you for, for offering me some space to, to talk about that today. Oh, honestly, please come back anytime. I mean, oh my gosh. I mean, I'll, I'll be <laughs> we haven't even yeah. had a conversation about Pittsburgh yet. So that's like a whole yeah. other thing. Oh God. My my you live my hometown, so. It's a whole episode. Oh, it's your hometown? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Yep. Yep. Um, uh, so Jules, if people want to follow you, where can they find your work? Yeah. So I'm very active on Twitter. Um, my, my handle is at GP underscore JLS. And from there you can kind of find in my bio, if you want, you know, I publish a weekly Substack newsletter that is across a whole bunch of genres, but is for a more accessible kind of wider audience. Um, and then of course I'm, ever busy writing scholarly things here and there that you can find um, by just Googling my name if you want to look at my profile page on the University of Pittsburgh. But um, catch me on Twitter. I'm, you know, yelling into the void pretty frequently there. Um, And and occasionally when things aren't so dire, trying to, you know, put out some good jokes and memes. So try to keep that that portfolio diversified as the millennial that I am. Yeah. And if you, the listener, enjoyed this, I would highly, highly recommend Jules's book. Oh, Um, yeah. Yeah, 100%.
And speaking of which, thank you for listening. If you'd like to support the show, patreon.com slash deathpanelpod. We do two episodes a week. This is the free one. If you're a patron, we'll mail you stickers. There's a lot to love about being a patron of the Death Panel. Anyways. Those stickers are very rad, I'll just say. <laughs> I like we'll it. send you some. Yes, we will. Jules, this has been amazing. Really appreciate it. And as always, Medicare for all now. Solidarity forever. Stay alive another week.